Hello and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 67. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by the man not from Colorado, but from Brooklyn, New York. Hello, Chad Owen. Yeah, coming to you from rainy Brooklyn. But uh, I'm a little sad because we're closing the book here on our series on Jim Collins, but we've got a good show in store for you all. I know. And hasn't this been just a delight to dig into the work of what you have to say is one of the grand masters of understanding what makes a business great. Jim Collins, the body of work is one thing. His methodology is amazing. We've done built to last. We've done good to great, but there remains one more book as part of this series. Yeah, I don't think I've seen any author's books in more airports than uh, Jim Collins is in. I remember <laughs> seeing this one. I can't remember which airport it was, but I remember seeing it on the shelves. But this is great by choice. And it's really, I think, the perfect kind of capstone to the series because it just builds upon the ideas from good to great and built to last. It does, doesn't it? And I think it's a fitting book to end this series on because what's in store for our audience today, Chad, is the chance to understand what choices you can make, what we can choose to do to build a great company. And in the previous show, we've learned all about starting by asking yourself, what sort of culture do we want to create? And that was really encapsulated by that tale of how HP started. Was that not the best story ever, Chad? Just the thought that a company like HP could be started by two founders that were like, ah, I know that we you know, like each other and want to go into business, but uh, I'm not really sure what we're going to build. <laughs> yeah. So they had the notes of their first company meeting and they worked out their values, the kind of people they wanted to hire. And they had a side note, and we've deferred the decision as to what we're going to build. Mind you, this is one of the greatest product companies of the last hundred years. They didn't even get around to agreeing that because they wanted to build something to last, which is just really, really inspiring. But then Collins moved on to looking at what happened in companies when they seemed to be doing pretty well. And then they catapulted to greatness. Good to Great is perhaps his most popular book and the perfect prelude to what we're going to talk about today. But for me, Chad, Good to Great, the best story he tells in that book is this simple one of get the right people on the bus and get the wrong people off the bus before you work out where you're going. Because if you just don't have the right people on the bus, it's just not going to work. I thought that was the, my biggest lesson. What was yours from good to great? I like the idea of the hedgehog concept and find out what you do well and can return to time and time again, no matter what the market forces are telling you and, and everything else. The idea is that as a hedgehog, just curl up into a ball and none of the predators can ever get you because you're just a ball of spikes. But I think it's a fun metaphor. Now, we're going to dive into a world of great by choice, which is another turn in this narrative of greatness. And I think what's in store for us today is the chance to find out what are the sort of things that you have to do? What are the ways you have to behave? What are the ways you have to think if you want to build a company, if you want to make deliberate choices towards greatness. And the crazy thing is, as we're recording this, we're one or two weeks after the death of Kobe Bryant, and there was this really inspiring quote and a story around his greatness where he said, greatness is a choice. And I think that really sets us up for a really exciting hour together to find out what is it that Jim Collins found in his book, Great by Choice? What were the companies that he discovered that had this special superpower of doing things? And I think what really sets Jim Collins apart outside of the great work that he writes, Chad, it's how he gets there, isn't it? It's how he cracks these huge insights. Anyone that's worked with us knows that we like working through rigorous processes. And this wasn't just some uh, idea that he had sitting in an armchair. This is 
years and years, if not decades of work and research that he and his team at Stanford had completed. And we have this great clip to kick off the show with the Charlie Rose interview where he gets into uh, the history of how he's done the research for all of these books. But why aren't you looking for the 10X companies? They had to already show you they were 10X companies. Oh, yes, that's true. So you have to look at history. You have to look at history to find, right. So think of it as uh, sports dynasties. Right. Okay. Uh, and you can take the 49ers of the 80s and you could take Wooden and, and his great uh, right. basketball right. dynasty. You take, you know, Yankees at their best, whatever. Right. And you go back and say, these are our great sports dynasties. Now let's go back and look and see what made those dynasties during that dynasty era different than other teams at that time. That's the essence of our method. And so we're looking at dynastic eras. We have mm-hmm. to find those. You have to go back and find who actually won 10 NCAA championships in 12 years and then study them. But that doesn't mean you have to rely on retrospective data. What we do, if you go into my basement, you'll see boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of materials. We go back and find all the documentation from the time of the events. And so you're sitting there with Gordon Moore's 1965 uh, Moore's Law uh, article. You're sitting there with the uh, documents and articles and materials on Intel in 1971, written in 1971. And what you try to do is you try to transport yourself back and to the best of your ability, knowing, of course, we're all human, but you go back and you don't read articles written in 2001 about 1971. You go back and you read materials written in oh, 1971. Sure, of, course, of course, of course, of course. And try to say, what did the world look like to them then? articles, though. I mean, the data has to look, you only get the data from looking back. That's correct. All right. That's correct. And then, and, and, but then the leadership factor comes in because... I mean, John Wooden brought some. There was a reason. Yes. Now, can we call that, as some people would like to, an X factor, or can we quantify John Wooden? <laughs> I don't know how you quantify wisdom. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> um, can you quantify John Wooden? I mean, he actually did a lot of interesting things in yes, terms of did. how he explained leadership yes, and character and performance yeah. and his own demand of his players. Yes, he did. And all of that contributed to his championships. Extraordinary championships. What you can do is you can look at the behaviors and decisions that leaders made and correlate those behaviors and decisions with outcomes and then ask which behaviors have higher correlations with outcomes. Uh, Why they made those decisions. Why somebody would be driven to go to the South Pole. You can't quantify, but you can quantify things like How many pieces of luck Mm. did they get? You can't quantify things like how often did they respond quickly to a given, to a fast-moving situation. You can quantify what did they do about innovation. And and, and you also can't quantify the X factor, too. And I I think, um, I increasingly uh, tend to to think of the the people that we look at as almost like artists. Right. And, And if you were to try to, imagine if you you could do an interview with Beethoven and you you were going to ask him, so why... Why, why did you go through draft after draft to try to get that amazing shift from the third to the fourth movement in Symphony Number no. 5 to stop your heart? That you can't quantify. But that why, of because I can. Okay, well, first of all, Long clip, but how good was that? You can tell that he's extremely passionate. He's got a basement full of files <laughs> from all of these companies. I mean, I, I can't imagine how many papers are down there. But I like Charlie's counter into the how can you quantify the X factor? And he makes it quite simple in that you just simply look at the decisions that these leaders made and what the outcomes were. And I know it sounds overly simplistic, but if you think about it, it's kind of hard, certainly back in this, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, much harder to do that because, you know, didn't have the internet back then to categorize every tweet that someone sent out and, and recordings of conference earnings calls and whatnot. So yeah, I just really applaud uh, Jim and the team for doing this research to find out what these leaders were thinking at the time and what the effects of those decisions were. Yeah, and as a sidebar, I think there's a, like a meta learning in this, apart from looking for that wisdom and making the right choices and 
I would say that I hope that everybody is getting something out of our show that might help them make better decisions. I think the other thing I want to point out on this, as I was saying, this sort of meta side of things, is that why is Jim Collins's work so good? Is that he goes back to 1971 to look at a dynasty and to read what was written in that time about that team and comparing it with others. Like he literally is forensically going back to isolate the culture, the behaviors that informed the decisions that were made towards greatness. And I think that the advice I would give to all of our listeners in everything we do, we should aim to be forensic. Don't guess your ideas. Know that they're the right thing. Do the work. Be disciplined. Don't chance your hand. Really dive into it. So there's a bigger learning here. And the way that Jim Collins has been successful is just doing the hard work. As you said, Chad, he's got a basement full of research and he combs through it. Our last show on Good to Great, we had another interesting clip about the research process, but he and his team go into it with absolutely no hypotheses, which I think is really interesting. And they make the data speak for itself. So they don't go with any biases or as best they can or preconceived notions about what they might find so that the results can speak for themselves. And there's some truly novel ideas that come out of it. Yeah, yeah. And what we've got as a result of all of that hard work is two big themes, that of, you know, risks and big bets. That's number one. And number two is the discipline it takes to be great. But before we dive into all of that, Chad, we've got to remind people that it's at moonshots.io where they find all our show notes, our archive, the links, they can sign up for our newsletter. But Chad, people have been reviewing our show like crazy in all the different applications, Spotify, Apple, Google Play. How many ratings are we up to now? This is getting a bit out of control. We've been putting out the call recently. What, what's the number, I think Chad? we're at 74 ratings currently. And we even had a, a recent um, incident of mistaken identity. <laughs> oh, this is so great. So we got to give a big shout out to Mary. So Mary was reaching out to us to inquire about a particular episode of a different Moonshots show on YouTube. Anyway, in the process of politely informing her that, hey, this is the wrong Moonshots, Mary took it upon herself to say, well, who is this Moonshots and this Mike and Chad guy? Took a listen to the show and she loved our first show and she says she can't wait for our Built to Last show. So a big shout out to Mary. I tell you what, that was probably the most unusual interaction that I've ever had with a fan, in a case of mistaken identity, <laughs> and what a delightful outcome. So we're sending out a big hello to Mary, and we hope all of you take a moment to go into your podcast software, give us a rating, give us a review, share this with friends. And Chad has his favorite, his favorite old school way of you reaching out. Chad, how do you want to hear from all of our listeners? Yeah, you can just simply email us at hello at moonshots.io. Go straight to Mike's and my inboxes. And we love hearing where you are, what you're listening to, and what you've thought about the show. So be sure to reach out and email us at hello at moonshots.io. Very, very nice. And now let's get back to Jim Collins. And I've got to say this next clip was one of the most surprising delights for me. I consider myself somewhat of a student of Jim Collins, certainly a number one fan. And actually he has some thoughts on luck, which are a really new way of thinking about it. And I love this insight. So let's get into Jim Collins talking about luck. These are audacious tasks in inherently risky settings. It's not about just managing risk. It's about doing something truly exceptional in an inherently risky setting and doing it in such a way, A, that you get to the top, you summit, and B, you get back alive. And one of the analyses we did was of uh, luck. It became 
actually all the work in 25 years I've, I've been associated with, the question that probably has tickled me the most is, how do you actually analyze luck? And we figured out how to do that. But what was very interesting about this is if you study luck, you, t- you learn that luck is asymmetric as a cause. Luck cannot cause a great outcome, cannot cause great success. Good luck. Bad luck can end it. Mm-hmm. Bad luck can be a cause. If you get four tails in a row or five tails in a row, and you know that eventually you're going to get heads again, it doesn't matter if you get killed at tails number four. And so if over time, luck tends to even out, which is what we found, Mm -hmm. you have to survive the inevitable spates of bad luck in order to be able to have the good luck that enables you on your quest. And so you're on this quest, you're dealing with a lot of luck, good luck and bad luck, and they're very interesting things that they do with luck, and that became a fascinating journey for us to understand. But you've got to survive the bad luck, or it doesn't matter. If you flip the coin uh, a thousand times, how many times is it going to be heads and how many times is it going to be tails? A thousand times it'll come in somewhere fairly close to... 500 each. Close. There'll be a little bit of statistical variation. But that doesn't mean you can't tell us if you do it 5,000 times, it'll still come But let's suppose you're going to get 10, and so say tails is bad luck, right? right? Somewhere along that 1,000, you may get 10 flips of tails. Right. What if eight of them kills you? That's why you need to have three to 10 times the cast to ashes ratio, because someday you're going to get 10 tails. You may need it when you get not one tails, not mm. two tails, not three tails, not four tails, not five tails, or you get a really big, bad piece of luck. He jumped right over it, but I don't want to miss it. He said you have to have a three to 10 cash to assets ratio because the whole time I'm listening, I'm like, okay, so how do I survive the bad luck? And there you go. He gives you a formula, back of the napkin formula you can use to understand that. But I mean, I would love to know how they figured out how to measure luck. He doesn't tell Charlie, but... <laughs> Maybe uh, he'll come out with a book in which he does. I think what we can learn from this is we're often way too optimistic around cash flow. I mean, how many startups with good products die because of cash flow? I think that we often are so optimistic and we have just enough when in fact he's saying, no, no, you need like three times as much. I mean, personal finance experts will tell you to have six months salary in cash for a rainy day. And I think for a lot of companies, they just simply don't sit on that much cash. And so you get one bad flip of the coin that hurts. But what he's really saying here, bad luck can kill you because you get three or four of those in a row, you need to be able to batten down the hatches. And I think once he makes it that clear and even gives you that number, it really does force you to think about, well, can we withstand multiple bits of bad luck? It's interesting how he advocates for being so bold on the one hand, doing something extraordinary in times of uncertainty, but then he's also making this conservative argument of you have to be able to weather the 10 tails and not just the eight. So that's an interesting dichotomy or tension. Yeah, and I think what you've just called out is why entrepreneurial success is so damn hard. You have to be bold and You have to be conservative simultaneously. And I think it really is knowing how to take a risk, right? Yeah. Many people have defined entrepreneurs as people who manage risk as kind of their primary purpose. And yeah, so I think this is a a very interesting way that Jim has laid it out for us. You have to find the healthy balance between the two because you can't just sit on cash and not do anything because you're not coming out with anything noteworthy or extraordinary, as Jim says. We also can't take too many bets too recklessly because then, you know, you'll be out of cash. Now, we'd be teasing all our listeners if we didn't have the answer to this dilemma. And this next clip is really a practice that we can all take on learning how to be bold and conservative all at the same time. He's got a little, well, it's not a little thought far from that, but he's got this great piece of advice coming up in this clip. So let's have a listen to Jim Collins talking about taking a risk. So you're talking slow and steady. That's really kind of the key here. But what about risk taking? Because if you don't take that risk, are you missing out on a big opportunity? Yeah. Well, first of all, it's intense and steady, Mm. right? Because 20-mile marching can be intense and difficult times when you don't want to get out of bed and you still do your 20-mile march. So when we look at the empirical creativity, what we found is that they would do what we call fire bullets, then fire cannonballs. What that means is you fire a bunch of bullets to figure out what's going to work, 
Then you get your line of sight, you put your gunpowder in a cannonball, and you fire that cannonball, and that is your big bet. So you look at something like the iPod, which we write about as how it was a series of bullets, a series of small shots, bullet, 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 and, and then boom. finally, boom, big cannonball. Flash. And finally, productive paranoia real quick. You know, the only mistakes you learn from are the ones you survive. Mm, so true. you should always have reserve buffers that you can endure shocks and go forward. Bullets and then cannonballs. Ah, oh, how good is that? That is totally it. And Chad, we have to admit, we're swimming in a little bit of validation from Jim Collins because this test and learn before you bet big is so much what we live and breathe. I mean, we are literally helping our clients test and learn before you bet big. Yeah, one of your mantras is don't guess. Stop guessing. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Oh my gosh. And here he is uh, laying it right out after studying thousands of companies, bullets, then cannonballs. I mean, I can't say it any better. Yeah, I think he puts it to a visual metaphor, what's kind of at the core of the philosophy and how we work. And so we might be stealing that uh, visual metaphor <laughs> from here on forward. I think it's yeah. a really good one. <laughs> now, the other interesting thing is that Jim does invariably study larger companies. And I think that what we need to point out here is that the reason that he's drawn there is because it's not just an idea. This is something where an idea has been taken to, you know, coast to coast, from continent to continent, and been done at scale. And actually, what he really defines greatness as requiring is the ability to build an idea out and to take it big. So this next clip is Jim putting this scale conversation into context and really reflecting on its relationship with innovation. So let's have a little listen to Jim Collins talking about innovation. One of the other things that I found really interesting in your book is the way you dealt with innovation. Because you, know, you sit in here and you put the television on in the United States, people talk about it's all about innovation. If we were more innovative, if we had a more innovative culture, but you say it's not all about innovation. Well, the, the evidence is quite clear that the pioneering innovators rarely win. So, so that's just fascinating data in itself. Uh, the most innovative, purely innovative, tend not to be the big winners in the end. Now, the winners are innovative, but, but, but if you really think about what's, and I'll speak as an American here, I've thought a lot about this question because we Americans tend to think that our trump card in the end is innovation. Right. Uh, I've come to the conclusion that we're wrong. Right. I believe we are innovative, so I'm very clear about that, but, but I think our great distinctive strength has been our ability to scale innovation. It's our ability to take an innovation and make it bigger and bigger and bigger and to be able to extend it out and to, uh, and to have it reach more and more people. So if you look at a case like, say, Intel, Intel wasn't that it just always had the most innovative chip. It was the fact that Intel had this amazing ability to scale up and continue to double the number of components and continue to uh, deliver it with great quality and excellence. And it was that combination of creativity and discipline, not just creativity, that really distinguished. Historically, I believe that is where America has really shined. We didn't invent the automobile, but we scaled it better. We, uh, we, we go into industry after industry, it was our ability to make it big off of an innovation that really separates. Huh. I think the magical two words are in this clip, and I think it's creativity and discipline. I think that is at the core of Jim's argument is that you can't just be creative or innovative, but you have to have that discipline to back it up. And so don't go anywhere. This entire second half of the show is all on that second one, discipline. But I'm curious, like for you, Mike, we live in this world of innovation. What's your reaction to him saying, well, it's just not all about innovation or it's not the most innovative that went? Well, I do have a little twist on that maybe scale is part of the innovation equation. Like if you've got a great idea or maybe an idea can be good, but it's only once it's done at scale that it's an innovation. And I tell you, as he was talking, the thing I was thinking about most is like what companies do we see the transition from a good idea to this innovation at scale? So I wanted to kind of turn it back to you and see, is there a company you can see at the moment that is on right now, here in 2020, on this journey of going to greatness 
through choice, who's learning how to scale their innovation. Does any company come to mind? Huh. That's a hard one. I don't know. I thought about it in the opposite context of a brilliant innovator that couldn't scale. And it's only because I read a biography recently, and that's Nikola Tesla. Arguably, you know, one of the most innovative inventors in the world of physics and electricity, but like either his things got stolen or, you know, bought or taken by someone else and taken to market. So take his namesake, Chad, (laughs) and you have the very act of learning to scale innovation right now. It's Elon Musk. He is right in this moment. Can he scale this? Well, he's slowly proving that he can. I think some people expected more from him sooner, but I actually think it is certainly starting to pay off if you take a look at the numbers of vehicles that are rolling off of the assembly lines. You know, it was like a dozen a month not that long ago, and now he's churning out hundreds and hundreds of vehicles. Well, we recently saw a massive spike in Tesla's stock because the naysayers finally said to themselves, you know what? I actually think they're going to start producing cars at scale. It's too funny that my mind went back to Nikola Tesla and you were thinking of Tesla, the company. (laughs) But if you think about it, you'd say that Netflix and Reed Hastings, who we're going to be doing in a show in the not too distant future, you would say Netflix are really trying to work out if they can pull off Netflix globally, and it would certainly look like they're going to, then that's truly innovation at scale. I would say Peloton is in the very early days of this challenge, and they might not make it. I think Uber, on the other hand, has proven they can scale it, but what they haven't proven is, do they actually have a sustainable business? So I think what's so fascinating here is, unfortunately, Jim is saying the job is not done once you've built the prototype, the MVP, or the idea. Actually, if you want to play with the big boys, if you want to be great, it's about innovation at scale. Yeah, and a company that I think is at risk of, you know, maybe being able to survive eight tails, but not 10 is a company like Facebook. So, I mean, no one would argue that it's not been a hugely successful social network and company, but I think they're facing a lot of issues and problems, fines, regulations, and just, you know, bad feelings uh, on the part of not just the consumers, but, you know, regulatory bodies and governments, or world governments even, that they may not be able to sustain their success and greatness. And I think you could also argue that they've fallen behind on innovations. You know, they've essentially acquired most of their product innovations of the last, I'd even say, six or seven years. I would agree. So Jim Collins has laid out this challenge of bullets and cannonballs, innovation at scale, and don't be a victim of bad luck. And you're thinking, geez, uh, Chad and Mike, usually they're pretty inspirational to listen (laughs) to, uh, but this is sounding like hard work. And I think the truth really is that the second half of the show is going to be about that hard work. There's no shortcut to success. And whilst that's kind of a bummer to hear, there's no such thing as an overnight success. Haven't we learned that a lot on the show, Chad? Like, Every entrepreneur we get into, you realize they've been working on this their whole life. Yeah, every choice that they've made, to go back to your Kobe quote, was a choice for greatness. And in the second half of the show, we're going to dive into the second word of the kind of two-word summary of what all of this is for Jim Collins, and that's the discipline. So it's not just the ingenuity, creativity, and innovation, but it's the discipline that comes behind it that makes it all work. And he even goes so far as to say it takes fanatic discipline to make it work. And here's a clip of Jim explaining the 20-mile march. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Fanatic discipline. Yeah. What does that yeah. mean? Yeah. Give this people a little... Well, so, it, it, so think about it. You're facing uncertainty. You, you, you maybe uh, get hit with health thing, or uh, you've lost a job, or you're trying to build your small business, or you're trying to make the sports team. And you're thinking, what do I do to get up in the morning? How do I go forward? We came across this thing called the 20-mile march. And the idea is that if you want to walk from Maine from San Diego to Maine, you could either try to do big 50-mile days in good weather and then hold back in 
uh, in bad weather. Yep. Or you could just every day, no matter what, do 20 miles a day, 20 miles a day, 20 miles a day. I was talking with somebody yesterday who took this idea because our companies all had 20 mile marches, 20 mile march, 20 mile march, 20 mile march, mm -hmm. who was trying to make a transition from having lost a job to finding a job. And she said to me, she said, I read your fortune piece. I had a 20-mile march. I woke up every single morning and said, I am going to reach out to three contacts a day, every single day, like clockwork. Not seven on one day yep. and zero on others, but every single day, 20-mile march. 20-mile march. Talk about designing habits for success. I can relate to this so much. I am so fanatical about waking up about writing my diary, reflecting on my to-do list, about exercising, about even the ritual to go to sleep so I maximize my beloved time fast asleep in bed. To me, when I look at my best self, it's when I've been doing my 20-mile march every single day, highly disciplined. When I look at myself at my worst, when I haven't delivered, it's been the absence of the 20 mile march. I can relate to this so strongly, Chad. I like this idea of consistently showing up. A word like discipline can have negative connotations, but I think he's really just saying, put your butt in the chair and do the thing and just keep doing the thing. <laughs> it sounds really simple, but it's often much, much harder. It is, it is. And I think there is a, a sort of a beauty of the 20 mile march. Because whatever the things you commit to doing, you don't have to worry about the big thing of what's my legacy? Am I going to be successful? And am I going to be the best version of myself? All you have to do is get your ass out of bed, right? All you have to do is write your diary. All you have to do is plan your day. Like there are some simple things like that's the beauty of the 20 mile march is that showing up is victory. And I think that's the, such a powerful starting point to discipline. And the beauty of that choice to get the hell out of bed, to not have that extra glass of wine at night because you want to be at your best in the morning. Or big thing for me is get my ass in bed before 10 o'clock. And then it's, I don't need to set an alarm because I'll be up at 5.30, maybe six o'clock in the morning without an alarm. But it's when I go to bed at 11.30 because I watched a documentary or I watched something on Netflix and then I'm like, oh, damn, yeah, technically I shouldn't get up till eight, but I got like calls starting at eight. So I got to get up at seven and, you know, then you've let it go. To me, March the 20 miles every single day is very powerful, but it brings me to this point of whatever is going to happen in the day, I'm in control of this. And there's this great speech by a Navy leader and his central advice is make your bed every single day. And the talk that he gives around that is everything else might go wrong, but when you come home at the end of the day, you've made your bed and you can get back into it. I love that because it's like, at least you controlled that bit, right? Well, this idea connects back to luck, you know, by consistently showing up and doing these things, you're assured that you can weather some of those harder times. In some ways, I think what he's arguing for is this, pardon me venturing into philosophy for just 30 seconds, but there's this stoic idea of equanimity. And it's essentially, you know, keeping an even keel. So rather than, as he says, you know, do 70 miles in one day and zero the next, just do 20 consistently. And so if you can keep that consistency, it will just not only deliver more consistent results, but it'll give you the confidence that you can weather both the good and the bad times. Totally, totally, totally. And what's beautiful is in finding how companies made a choice to be great. Jim Collins has this great thinking about where to put your focus. So let's have a listen to Jim Collins with another piece of great wisdom. The, the, the really big thing that comes from the book is that the leaders who are facing forces outside of their control, as many of these leaders are. I mean, they have so many things that they can't control, that there are ways of exerting a sense of control in a world that's out of control. And by having that, you know, insanely fanatic discipline and the empirical creativity and the productive paranoia, 
kind of all infused with that ambition bigger than yourself, allows you to navigate a world that is out of your control and do really well in it. So to me, the biggest lesson from all of it is your performance or the performance of your community or the performance of your organization isn't determined by what happens to you. It's determined by how you lead, the choices you make, the behaviors you bring, and that even in extreme environments, that's true. How many startup founders and CEOs need to take that quote to heart? I know, I know. And the thing is that the things that are outside of your control are often bigger. And so therefore they're big and you don't control them, cause you more stress. So like focus on your own 20 mile march, right? Because you can control that. Like your choice to wake up and make the bed to write the diary, to plan the day. That's all a choice. And the crazy thing is if you do make those choices and you do get those things done, you feel great. There is nothing better for me of arriving in the office to see the team and to know that I have woken up, worked out, written my diary, worked deeply for maybe 45 minutes to an hour, and I arrive into the office and I feel fantastic. And it's 9, 10 o'clock. That is the best feeling in the world. They were all my choices. So whatever chaos unravels throughout the day, I still have this starting point. And I think that's such a great lesson about, you know, focus on what you can control. It's such a timeless piece of wisdom, isn't it, Chad? Yeah. I mean, it, I've been reading it in uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, again, to take it back to stoicism. But this idea of carving out the time to be sure that you can work on what is within your control can go from your personal into your business life. I know so many people that are obsessed with you know, the competition and what the competition is doing and how can we beat the competition. But you see this most successful companies out there just simply showing up and doing their thing. And that takes care of the competition you know, without even ever having to worry about it. I totally, totally agree. The beauty of all of the work that Jim has done, thousands of companies deep somewhere in his dusty basement, brings us back to some very intrinsic choices, not even within the organization, but about ourselves, about us, the individual, how we are going to show up. We just have two more clips left. This next one is really bringing it to a really sharp, pointy end. Let's have a listen to Jim Collins talking about choices and discipline. Now, I digress to the research method for a very simple reason. Because there's an underlying message from that research, from that method. See, if you study those that become great in contrast to those that did not, but they're in the same circumstances, facing the same conditions, coming from a similar point in life, then the explanatory variable for why some become great and others don't, why some sustain it and others don't, cannot be circumstance, cannot be the environment, cannot be the cards they're dealt. And through all the research we've done now, which is four studies, they all use that method. And if I could pick one main overall point to come from it all, it would be simply this. Greatness is not a function of circumstance. Greatness is a function first and foremost of conscious choice and discipline. We are not imprisoned by our circumstances. We are freed by our choices and by our disciplines. Choice and discipline. There it is. Oh my gosh. He is like so stoic in those remarks. He is getting down to brass tacks. And after all of his body of work. I mean, I dare you to disagree with Jim Collins, Chad. <laughs> Go on. I dare you. Yeah. 25 years and four studies with uh, Stanford graduate students. Yeah. I'll, I'll take a pass on challenging that. <laughs> Just wonderful. So he is challenging us. Don't rely on luck. You know, shoot your bullets, then your cannonballs. And you are not done till you've done this at scale. And that takes discipline and discipline comes to focusing on what you control. And it's the choices that you have, that you face when you wake up every morning. It's the choice that you make, which will determine your success. So the great news, it's all in our hands. The bad news, it's all in our hands. 
<laughs> I mean, there's this interesting concept of willpower that I've come across both in Jim's work and in many others, but it's just simply every choice that you have to make during your day is depleting some part of your willpower. So this idea of getting the important things done first, you know, having the discipline to do those things that are going to make the biggest difference and either automating or delegating away everything else. I mean, it's something that I'm horrible at that I need to get better at, but I at least am being, you know, encouraged here by Jim to do so because according to him, that's the single uniting factor amongst all of the companies that he's studied is that he can point to the companies that become and stay great because of the choices and the discipline to make and stick to those choices. Yeah, it's a good blueprint, but I feel like I have a lot of work to do here. (laughs) Yeah, you got to let it sink in. But while you, me, and all of our audience are letting that sink in, we have a personal anecdote from Jim to round out not only this show, but the series on him. And while all I can say is just sit back and enjoy this last clip from Jim Collins because this says it all. When I was uh, in high school, I must have been maybe 16 or 17 years old. And I went rock climbing in El Dorado Canyon where I, near where I grew up in Boulder. I was, I'd been climbing about three or four years, and I went to do a climb called T2. Now, at the time, T2 was a relatively difficult climb. And uh, I went at it with a uh, uh, kind of an arrogant lack of preparation. And I hadn't prepared for being able to do certain kinds of finger cracks. I figured, I figure, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there. And I also didn't pause and this is that thing about boldness and discipline. I didn't pause to really double smack, double check all my systems. Okay, so I'm on the fourth pitch. I'm about 400 feet above the ground. I'm going across this slanting crack system that I'd had trouble, that I, I started to have trouble with. And my forearm started to engorge with blood and lactic acid, which means at some point, even if you're on a big hold, your hands are going to melt off. Okay. And I'm about to fall. I'm 400 feet above the ground. But it should be okay because there's protection. I'm tied into the rope. I may take a fall, but I'll get caught. For some reason, and to this day, I still don't know why, my brain triggered that I should look at my knot. And I looked down at my knot. My knot had come untied. I had made the mistake of of never really thinking about the best knot for certain types of situations. And I tied him with what's a bowline. Now, the advantage of a bowline is it's easy to untie, if you, right? Mm -hmm. The disadvantage of a bowline is it's easy to untie. (laughs) It had come untied as I kept moving across. And it is just hanging in my harness. I'm seconds away from falling. Only now I will die. I will die if I fall off. My forearms are melting. And the knot had come untied. And so I called down to my partner. I said, my knot came untied. What is he going to do? He can't do anything. He just watched me fall to my death. And I, there was an old fixed piton in the rock that we put there from the first descent, an old soft iron piton. And I looked at it, and I probably had 15, 20 seconds before my hands would unwrap. If that, maybe 10. I took a runner. And I clipped it into the piton. I clipped the piton into my heart, the, that runner into my harness, and just went, please hold. And I let go. And it held. Okay. I put in a backup. I grabbed the knot, we tied it, went to the ledge. It didn't convulse. Into, I, I was very calm at that moment. When I got to the ledge, I went into convulsive shaking. I was sick to my stomach for days because of the, the whatever happens chemically. Um, What I learned from that is two things. Uh, The first is that when you're in an unforgiving world, when gravity is unforgiving, it doesn't care. It never takes a day off, ever. And if you make one mistake, it can kill you if it's the wrong kind of mistake. And what I learned is that sense of, yeah, I want to do adventurous things. I want to climb rocks. I want to be in Yosemite. I want to do things that get my adrenaline going. 
I, but I need the discipline to always do all the right preparation, to always think about the right knots, to always be cross-checking my system so that I can do those bold things and stay alive in an unforgiving environment. And as you and I spoke about earlier today, I think that's the rest. Of, I think we're all heading into an un, unforgiving environment where we're going to have to be both bold and disciplined. The second thing I learned, what if that piton had not been there? we might not be here together. It was just by chance that that piton was right there. And what you realize when you rewind the tape of your own life is that there are these crucial moments where if the luck had gone the other way, you might have gotten killed. And so what you have to do is to always be putting those extra disciplines in place because I was lucky to live. And what I took from that is I never want to have to be lucky to live. Never have to be lucky to live. Yeah, if that doesn't uh, drive home the point of discipline, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah, oh, that was fantastic. Also, you know, let's just take a step back. This guy has a very deep academic background, very rigorous, data-driven approach. Yet his capacity to tell that personal story of him as a 16-year-old and how this relates to his life's work studying businesses that were great, is that not <laughs> the way to end the Jim Collins series on the Mitchell podcast? Oh, yeah. Come on. Thank you for finding that clip and putting it here at the end of the show. That's a rocker. That's so good. It's so good. What I feel like this has just been a big reminder, a big poke in the arm about discipline and to take joy in discipline and don't get bored with it. Take joy in the discipline. The healthy tension between boldness and discipline is really, I think, what I'm going to take away from this. I don't think I'm ever going to find the center in that because, well, one, I think it would be boring, but I think it's going to be different for everyone. Some businesses may be forced to be a little bit more bold and others may be forced to be a little bit more disciplined. But I think as long as you have a healthy tension between those two poles, then you have you know the makings of a really interesting company and career. So there it was, Jim Collins, three absolutely chock-a-block, dense, tasty, brimming, foaming at the top episodes. Just so much to learn there. I love the fact that we come out of this series refreshing ourselves with a grandmaster. We come out of this series knowing that it's all about the hard work and just enjoy the hard work. I've thoroughly enjoyed this, Chad. Does anything change tomorrow when you wake up? Does anything really change for you? Is there a reminder here for you that you're going to take away? I can't decide if it's creativity and discipline or boldness and discipline. It's going to be one of those two. That's going like on a post-it on my mirror in my bathroom or in my closet. Boldness and discipline. Well, if Jim Collins was great, so was a gentleman called Clayton Christensen. And we did a Clayton Christensen show in the early part of our life. It wasn't that so long ago, Mike. It was last year. Was it last year? It feels like it. We've done so much. Oh my gosh. But Clayton has passed away. He's no longer with us. He had a real battle with cancer. It's safe to say that Clayton is on par, at least, with Jim Collins. When we talk about great companies, companies that innovate at scale, Clayton wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a must-read. And I think it would only be fitting that in the next show, Chad, that we revisit Clayton and we look at the body of his work and remind ourselves on what he offered us. It was truly a legacy. Yeah, he wrote a very interesting Harvard Business Review article that he also turned into a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? So I'm excited to take a, a look in retrospective, not only at the Innovator's Dilemma and in his other books, but also How Will You Measure Your Life? I think, especially after having listened to that clip from Jim Collins about almost uh, falling off of the cliff while rock climbing, there's some really interesting questions I think that we can reflect on and, and ask ourselves when we're revisiting the greatness of the thinking of, of Clayton Christensen. 
And while we're at it, if you want to see what's coming for us, you can go to moonshots.io and look at the list of future shows. But let's give a taste of that. Chad, we've got two brand new series after we record Clayton Christensen. Why don't you share with people what we've got coming up? Some very cool series. I'm going to have to find something else to read here. We're, we're leaving the land of authors. <laughs> I'm going to have to find a fiction book or something to pick up here. <laughs> oh, my Lord. So after our uh, look back on Clay Christensen, we're going to be going into a female tour of innovation with the likes of Michelle Obama and Ariana Huffington. Oh, and Melinda, Melinda Gates. Gates. Yes, that's the third one. And then after that, we've been thinking about a media-focused trifecta with the likes of Bob Iger from Disney, Kevin Feige, also of Disney associated with the Marvel franchise, and of course, Reed Hastings from Netflix. Wow. That is a pretty exciting run of almost 10 shows ahead of us. How exciting, but it was so exciting to share Jim Collins together and hopefully to inspire all of our listeners to go and reflect on his work, on his books, and see how they can be great by choice. Chad, I think we got to the end of another show. You know, I guess the big question is, now that you're back from Colorado, what's next in the sort of slightly gray, slightly wet February in Brooklyn, New York? It's funny you should ask, Mike, because I believe you and I are going to be recording after this show, our latest podcast we haven't been plugging here, but probably should. Did we not mention it? I thought, yeah, no, just once. We got to plug it and plug it again. Okay. Mike and I are taking a, a very practical business-focused approach to innovation on the Bottom Up podcast. You can go to bottomup.io and find the podcast or search for it in your podcatcher of choice. But Mike and I spend about 10 minutes or less focused on really practical tips and tricks and tools in the areas of design thinking, lean startup, agile, rapid prototyping, and so many more. Uh, I believe we're going into how to run surveys and learn from your customers in the next series on the podcast. Can't wait to get into that. So go to bottomup.io if you're interested in that. And when in doubt, go to moonshots.io and dive into all our back catalog and catch all the old shows Chad, it's been fantastic to finish the Jim Collins series. We've got so much of ahead of us on the Moonshots podcast. I'm fired up. I hope you and all of our listeners are too. But for now, that's it. It's a wrap of the Moonshots podcast.